the world's rarest, most expensive, and most delicious fungus, also causes humans to steal and to commit fraud and violence. This week, it's all about truffles. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Welcome. If you've listened to the podcast before, you might know that I'm obsessed with truffles. I love them so much that my first novel in 2015 was called Truffle Hunt, exploring all kinds of aspects of the truffle culture in Croatia. It also explores truffle fraud. And so I was extremely excited when I learned about this new book called Truffle Underground by Ryan Jacobs. I got in touch with Ryan and he agreed to talk to me on the podcast. We'll talk about everything from how truffles are harvested to some of the fraud that's perpetrated in the truffle industry. But first, I need to give you a little warning. At about 19 minutes into the podcast, there is a trigger warning. There is talk about violence towards animals. And I think it's important to talk about this because it is a part of the truffle industry, although a sad and unfortunate one. But I want to warn you that that is part of this. So about 19 minutes in, if that's something that's going to trigger you, you might want to forward through for the next four or five minutes. Okay, let's talk truffles with Ryan Jacobs. Destination Eat Drink. Ryan Jacobs is an investigative reporter who has covered diamond heists and international crime for The Atlantic, Mother Jones, and Pacific Standard. His new book is called The Truffle Underground, a tale of mystery, mayhem, and manipulation in the shadowy market of the world's most expensive fungus. Ryan, welcome to Destination Eat Drink. Thank you so much for having me, man. Let's first talk about what truffles are, because I'm a truffle guy, and when I get excited and start talking about truffles, I often dive right in, forgetting that most people, when you say the word truffle, they think of those little chocolates they get on Valentine's right, yeah. Day. So <laughs> define what we're talking about here. Yeah, we're talking about an edible fungus. Um, it grows in symbiosis with the roots of oak trees, hazelnut trees, a few few other different species of trees, but it grows underground. Um, and it is a hypogeous uh, fungi, meaning uh, that it, it's below ground and, and it's a mycorrhizal uh, fungi, meaning it grows in the symbiote, in symbiosis with the roots of trees. Um, but it's one of sort of the finest, scarcest and most prized ingredients in fine dining. Um, you need a dog uh, in order to find them. Um, cultivation is not uh, really fully possible at a commercial scale. Um, there are a good number of truffles that are that are now cultivated, but that's mostly the black winter truffle, which is which is the one that grows in France. Um, but they have not figured out how to grow the white uh, Italian truffle or the Alba truffle, which is commonly known as. 
Um, they're, they're just, uh, they don't understand the mechanics by which it, which it grows and they can't reproduce them. This is an important point because black truffles, the so-called Paragord truffle, the burgundy truffle, the black truffle, mm-hmm. these can be uh, commercially made. And they're being done in the United States, even in Northern California and Oregon, even mm. Eastern Tennessee. But this white mm. truffle, this one is the most valuable truffle because it has to be foraged. Right. Yeah, there's no other way to, I mean, you can't grow a white truffle. It's just impossible. Um, And one of the scientists that I spoke to for the book said, I mean, even if someone was to discover the sort of secret of cultivating the white truffle, it would probably take quite a while for that to sort of pass into um, you know, the public space. Um, Scientists even in the truffle industry um, are very secretive about what they're working on. Um, You mentioned that there are, you know, sort of truffle farms in California, Oregon, Tennessee, which is true, but they're not producing at a rate that could supply the demand in the United States for truffles. So most of the truffles that you would eat in the U.S. are coming from Europe um, a lot of them are foraged even on the on the black winter truffle end because they those are also grow in Italy and are foraged in Italy as well. Um, the white truffle grows in just these very narrow slices of land um, in a few areas of Italy. Um, and other than that, you might see some in Slovenia and Hungary and some of the Eastern Euro- European countries. Um, but besides that, you're not going to find them anywhere else. And that that is really why they're so scarce. The seasons are very short. Uh, it's roughly from September to, you know, through New Year's. Um, if you can get them in late September, you, they might not start that early. Um, and, you know, it, it, the supply of them has been dwindling probably over the last uh decade because actually surprisingly because of climate change um there's declining that's what scientists at least guess uh there's declining summer precipitation in the mediterranean there's warmer temperatures and usually to have a good white truffle season you need a lot of summer rain you need a sort of um warm fall um and that Uh, has sort of made them even rarer than they already were. And, you know, black truffles, they've seen them start to migrate northward because of the climate change. I'm sure at some point white truffles will probably make this northern migration. But another thing that adds to the scarcity of truffles is human encroachment on their their habitat. In other words, we're building houses and buildings and things like this that used to be forested— in Italy and in France and in places where there are truffles. Yeah. And this is leading to what you what you pointed out, Ryan, which is the scarcity of truffles, um, which drives up the price. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the price because with, with fraud, with any fraud, there has to be a monetary aspect to it. And with mm-hmm. truffles, they're so expensive that it makes it ripe for fraud, I think. So what, what price range are we talking about when we talk about white truffles? So when you talk about a white truffle, you're talking about 7,000 euros per kilo, depending on the season. Now, the prices fluctuate kind of wildly depending on how 
um, <clears throat> well hunters in Italy do that season. Um, but sort of typical standard average price in the, in sort of the commercial market is like someone brings you a kilo of good white truffles, you're going to pay about 6,000 euros. And then, so at the restaurant level as a consumer, um, you might only have like an ounce or uh, a little bit more than that, an ounce and a half, and they might charge you, you know, 200 extra bucks for that truffle service at a Michelin star restaurant in Manhattan or in Los Angeles or San Francisco or wherever it might be. So it's extremely expensive um, at the at the high end. And then the black truffles are also really expensive, actually, um, because, like I said, they they can cultivate them, just not at a scale that can keep up with the demand. Um, but you might on the commercial market, you're talking about maybe a thousand euro per kilo. Um, and you're talking about kind of similar prices at the table level, maybe a hundred dollars uh, for a few few shavings on your eggs or your foie gras or whatever it might be. So this is not an everyday thing for people to enjoy, which is why when people hear these prices, they kind of choke a little bit and go, oh my God, how could, you know, how could anyone do this? But we're talking about high end, like you said, high end Michelin rated restaurants, unless of course you happen to be in a place like Alba or you happen to be in the Istrian peninsula of Croatia Uh or Slovenia, where these truffles are common and And my finding was when we were in Croatia, even when we were in Italy, uh, prices Mm. are relatively reasonable when you compare to those uh, Michelin star prices that you might see in the United States. Yeah. Well, it's just closer at hand Um, at some of the spots that you might go to as a tourist. um, You might get you might see a higher price. But, yeah, certainly in certain areas of Italy, Mainly, I would say Piemonte, which is the region where Alba, this sort of famous truffle city is, and Asti, which is a village that's not too far, or actually it's a small city, not too far from Alba. Um, You can go into a restaurant and and probably get a reasonable price. Um, But that's true of wine as well. You know, like you go to a restaurant in the States and you might pay like, you know, what is it? Uh, $17 for a glass of wine. You might pay a hundred dollars for a bottle of wine at the table. Whereas in Italy, um, because they have so much fine wine there, you're going to pay like 15 bucks for a good bottle of wine. So I think it's similar kind of in that way that they're sort of prized regional goods, um, are sort of priced, in a more approachable way than that than they are when they when they reach the states and and part of the part of the price differential is built into the system because you have so many different layers between the time that a hunter finds a truffle in the forest and it actually arrives on your table in new york or miami or wherever it might be um you know, the hunter has to go to a middleman and the middleman takes his truffle and the middleman might go to a company and the company might take it to a distributor. And this distributor has to place it at a restaurant and then the restaurant has to then buy that truffle and actually serve it to you, make sure it's stored fresh. They're extremely perishable. Um, you only have about like 10 really good days 
on a fresh truffle, which makes it a sort of nightmare when it comes to the supply chain. Um, but that's why part of the reason why it's so much more expensive in the U.S. We talked about the the price of truffles. And when you're talking about foraging out in the forest, you know, the cost to the forager is rather low. He has to have, or she, um, I know female truffle hunters too, they mm-hmm. have to find, they have to have a dog that's trained. It could take up to two years to train that dog. And uh, yeah. truffle dogs are very valuable to the to the forager. Um, but that's really their only cost. Um, you know, the gasoline to get to drive out there or whatever, and the time that they spend in the forest. But yeah. there's not a high level of uh, cost to get yourself involved in the truffle trade. So when you're talking about 7,000 euros per kilo compared to a low cost of entry, this mm-hmm. creates a huge incentive for fraud. Talk about yeah. some of the fraud that you discuss in your book um, when it comes to truffles. So the main frauds, there's sort of like two different kind, uh, maybe three different kinds of fraud. The first one, the sort of most basic one is what I would describe as sort of geographical grift. Um, so you might have a white truffle that's fresh and good and harvested in Slovenia, but it will be purchased by either a company in in Italy or a middleman in Italy brought into the city of Alba or Asti and then sold as an Italian truffle. Now that this, uh, sort of really upsets the local Italian truffle hunters who spend a lot of time training their dogs, a lot of time learning the sort of local landscapes and forests that they hunt these things in. And it also upsets the the chefs who kind of really pride themselves on the terroir of a white truffle that's found in a particular valley near Alba. Um, but with that said, even if you don't accept that a Slovenian truffle is not as good as an Italian truffle, it's still uh, less expensive. So you are you are uh, profiting off of presenting it as an Italian truffle because it's much more expensive um, and it has such a uh, so much of a bigger reputation than some of the Croatian, Hungarian um, and Slovenian supply. So that's the geographical uh, grift in a nutshell. The other thing, which I think is a more, a way more serious fraud, um, is where you are getting a truffle from a different country, but it is not the equivalent of what you're selling in Italy or France. It's something completely different. So it's a different species. Um, so there is a truffle that grows in China and the Sichuan uh, province, as well as some of the other areas in that in that region and it is called tuber indicum is the the latin name and then there's also tuber himalayensis which is really hard to say and i don't know if i'm pronouncing it correctly and so those are the two latin names but basically their value their value is very low you might be able to go into a chinese marketplace uh, meet a trader. And these things are not hunted with dogs that are so plentiful that they're brought up with rakes um, in, in some of the Chinese forests. And you, you could buy probably $30 would get you a kilo in China, maybe maybe $100 versus like a black winter truffle, um, like we said, is about 1000 So that's a major sort of 
price differential. Um, and that, I think, is also just a more serious and sophisticated fraud because it's really hard to tell the difference between these Chinese truffles and uh, French black winter truffles or Italian black winter truffles um, because they look <laughs> extraordinarily similar. Um, even uh, a scientist to that, that I spoke to in France, um, he's been working with truffles for most of his adult life, um, was like, I, I still sometimes under the microscope, I can't mm, really tell the difference. And that's what they say. You need a microscope to tell the difference. So how can a chef in a kitchen be expected to, to say, oh, this is a Chinese truffle. This is an Italian truffle. Right. They have no idea. They really don't. <laughs> and that's why I think a lot of chefs, especially at the upper echelons of fine dining, really take the sourcing of their truffles very seriously because they know that there are frauds out there. They know that people are trying to pass off uh, fresh truffles, which are not fresh or truffles that weigh a little more and maybe have still have some mud on them. And then also this this species fraud that we're discussing, which you either need a microscope or even a genetic analysis um, to be able to tell whether what you're buying is what it actually is. Um, so they the chefs that I talk to. One of them is a guy by the name of Ken Frank, who works at uh, La Toque in Napa, Michelin star Very restaurant, that does, restaurant. Yeah, that does great truffle service. Um, and he's been working with truffles probably longer than any other American trained chef. Um, he's been working with them since the 1970s. And he says, you know, I don't buy truffles <laughs> from uh, people that I don't know. I don't buy truffles from people who are not my friends. He, he, he basically has a very sort of secretive source. He wouldn't tell me who it was, but he you know knows him very well, that their families know each other, their wives know each other, they hang out. It's someone who he places a great uh, amount of trust in to provide him the freshest and um, most sort of authentic truffles that he can get his hands on. When I've talked to restaurateurs in Italy and in France, what they say is, hey, if some guy shows up at my back door with a sack full of truffles, I have no idea. Um, mm -hmm. That's why they want to make sure exactly what you said, Ryan, which is you've got to make sure that you trust the source where you're getting mm -hmm. those truffles. Um, yeah. The other the other thing that's interesting is, uh, you know, you talked about uh, the guy in uh, Latour saying that he has a secret supplier. The other thing is the foragers themselves who go out into the woods, they also are extremely secretive about their locations where they mm -hmm. do their truffle hunting. They yeah. won't tell their they won't tell their friends. A lot of times they won't even tell their family. And that's why they go out in the middle of the night or very early in the morning to do their truffle hunting, and they're very protective of their spots. Um, right. This can lead to some unfortunate circumstances. And one for me, one of the most heartbreaking things in your book, you talk about it, is this um, new trend of now 
poisoning dogs, truffle hunting dogs out in the forest. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So like I said, the seasons are really short, especially for white truffles um, in northern Italy. And so the competition is fierce. There's territorial competition between hunters in the same area. There's territorial competition between hunters in different regions. So people don't like it when you sort of infiltrate their area. It's very provincial. They're very protective. Most hunters hunt alone, like you said, at either dusk or uh, dawn. And it's because they don't want people knowing which parts of the forest are sort of honeypots for for these truffles. You might have an area that you found or your grandfather had shown you when you were a kid and you've been going out there ever since. Um, and it's just been really bountiful, bountiful for you and you don't want someone else having that opportunity. So, but what leads to, um, what I mean is that leads to this competition and sabotage that we've been talking about. So you'll have a hunter that goes out to a new area of the forest. He maybe has never been there. People recognize that there's a new car there. Uh, parked in the dirt tracks in the woods that they've never seen before. Uh, They don't know who it is. They might slash your tires. They might dent your door. They might shatter your windows. Um, There are stories of cars being burned while um, truffle hunters are out in the forest. You come back to an incinerated car um, over over these kind of territorialism uh, fights. And then the, the sort of bleakest uh, and saddest form of sabotage is a dog is a really valuable tool for a truffle hunter. You might invest several thousand dollars in getting a Legotto Romagnolo, which is the particular Italian water breed that is best for hunting white truffles. And they're incredibly cute as well. <laughs> we should point that out. Yeah, they're, they're, they, are, they are very cute. Um, And you might also spend a ton of time and resources trying to train them how to find truffles because they're not sort of natural um, truffle finders like pigs are. And pigs have been phased out. People always mention pigs, so I'll just get this out of the way. Pigs have been phased out because pigs love to eat truffles. And there was was essentially like hunters like wrestling with their pigs to get like truffles out of their mouths where dogs just sort of let them go. Um, so, so you put a lot of time into this animal. You have a really special relationship with it. Someone you work with, it's sort of like a working dog. And I think that's when the sort of closest relationships between humans and canines develop is when you're really working with this creature all day or for several hours in the forest for several months. It's not just a house dog. This is really like a working dog and it's really special to your family. It's really special to your ability to get the number of truffles that you're getting. So what people do is one, they steal dogs. Um, if you have a really good truffle dog and someone sort of spots you on the mountain with, with someone who is, or a creature who is exceptional at finding truffles, if they notice that you're getting way more maybe that day than someone else, they might track you down. They might see where you're living. They might surveil you for a while. And then all of a sudden your truffle dog will be missing. 
and it will maybe be smuggled out of the area. They don't really, the authorities don't really know where these truffle dogs are going. We assume that they're being used by either other truffle hunters in other areas or even uh, smuggled to other countries, but it's a sort of form of sabotage, but they can make a profit off of it. And then the other people poison the truffle dogs. They will leave basically booby traps out in the forest. Um, you might, it started sort of with uh, the sponge, which if a dog e eats a shrunken down sponge, um, they'll have the sort of sensation of fullness and they won't eat and they might die by starvation. Uh, then after people figured out what was going on with the sponge, they moved to shards of glass and meatballs. Oh. Um, which rips up a dog's inside. Sorry, trigger warning for for dog uh, lovers. Um, and then now they use uh, a lot of the time strychnine, which is a colorless, odorless uh, toxin that's used to remove, you know, sort of gophers and other um, and other animals from uh, agricultural land. Um, and they'll put that in the, in the sort of the same kind of thing, maybe water that's pooling in the, in the forest or Mars Capone or whatever it might be, sausage. Um, and that, that tends to kill them really quick um, because once you ingest that, uh, it, it's basically straight up poison. So um, you don't really have much time to get to the veterinarian um, before the dog dies. And I was actually in Aussie. I met a veterinarian who was treating poison truffle dogs. Um, and when I went to meet him, he was actually had a dog who had ingested one of these toxins um, and who was brought in by a hunter and he was, he was treating him or her. I, I forget the, the sex of the dog, but they were treating the dog for poisoning. And what he said is now they've moved even past strychnine and they're starting to use sort of industrial intoxicants. Um, and the difference between that and strychnine is you might, if you go fast enough to a, to a vet, um, you might be able to, through like sort of anti-convulsion medicine, be able to save the dog. Um, but with these intoxicants, what happens is the dog sort of starts to get tired and lethargic, and but they're basically not acting very. Essentially, they don't. They act pretty much normal. Like if you have like a dog at home who's just like curling up into your lap and like you know, kind of slow, kind of, kind of goofy. You don't really notice it. And yeah, you then, wouldn't think anything is wrong. Right. So it's a, a long time to pass and then they just die. So you don't even have the opportunity to go to the veterinarian and get these things checked out. So, and, and, and he, he was speculating that that was sort of the part of a more aggressive form of sabotage among these truffle hunters. Um, to sort of remove even the possibility of saving, saving the dogs. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, it's a, it's a really tough and difficult subject for a lot of people. And I think it's, uh, it's hard to understand why people would do that, but it, it goes back to the, the amount of money that you're able to make in the trade, um, your sort of pr pride around your particular forest or your particular spot in the forest. You really don't want intruders in that area. But I asked the vet when I was done talking to him, I said, well, would you like to see a bunch of reforms and accountability and, you know, new regulations around this? And he's, 
And he was like, yeah, I would love to see uh, dogs not dying for truffles. But besides that, I wouldn't change anything about the industry because I think part of the uh, romanticism, part of the allure of truffles is the the sort of secret, secret, secrecy and shadiness around them. And I was like, wow, that's really surprising for a guy who treats maybe, you know, um, whatever it is, a dozen or more poison dogs during, uh, during one season in a single city to say, oh, well, I really don't want the dogs to die, but I would love for all the financial shiftiness and secrecy to continue. I think that's part of the beauty of the trade. And part of me, um, you know, sort of disagrees wholeheartedly with that. And part of me, after going through this whole process of reporting the book, I, I can sort of see what he's saying. It's it's a little easier for me to understand. But when, I, when he first said it, it kind of shocked me. You know, wherever there's lots of money to be made, and the truffle industry is certainly one of those places, usually organized crime follows. Is there an organized crime element with this truffle fraud? Yeah. So that's what I was trying to really make. I was trying to find or investigate a link between organized crime and truffles. And I wasn't actually able to establish a formal link. But what I did find is that in several other areas of the food market in Italy, as Italian food has become sort of a international or global sort of luxury food item, organized criminals are moving aggressively into the luxury food space. So you have olive oil, uh, which a British journalist wrote an entire book about. You have fraud in the olive oil industry, which is driven by some of the mafias. You have... um, counterfeit ham, uh, prosciutto di Parma. Uh, there's a special stamp that needs to be on every single one. Uh, they basically counterfeited a way to stamp a fake, uh, you know, prosciutto di Parma, uh, Parma, um, stamp on there. And the, the carabinieri, which is the Italian police, uh, they have an entire division devoted to food, and health crime. And it sort of works like the FBI, but their sole focus um, in some parts of their uh, network is food fraud. Um, So you have champagnes, French champagnes, Italian wines, all of this stuff has fallen into the hands of organized criminals. And they have established connections between a lot of those goods and and the Camorra mafia, even the Cosa Nostra in Sicily, um, the Indrangheta, who is is now becoming more of a powerhouse. And so a lot of those foods have they found when they've discovered these people, they're, you know, out in the countryside and these guys are armed uh, when they when they go to do inspections. They ha- they don't really care about authorities checking into the authenticity of food. So the carabinieri often will go with guns and we're talking about food police now that are armed and able in order to do their do their inspections and so my my interest there was well with all these other items olive oil uh prosciutto um wine champagne you have these really strict uh sort of um authenticity systems in, in both france and italy 
um, which you have to kind of meet. And there's like, like organizations where, which regulate those trades. So what I was thinking was like, well, if it's so easy to get around those controls and those certifications with these other foods, it would see, seem even easier to get around them for truffles, which does not even have a sort of third party um, regulator. Um, most of the truffles that travel are unmarked. There's no lot codes or paperwork Um you know, you're talking about a guy and a dog getting a truffle, walking to a market, selling it to someone else for in all cash, um, that being driven somewhere else. There's no sort of um, – there's no checks and balances. So I thought maybe, okay, well, that's an opportunity for organized crime, certainly. Um, but I wasn't able to establish like a definitive – uh, link. But what I did find is that uh, Interpol, which is like the international police or organization, does these checks every year called uh, Project Opsin, which is, I think, food or something like that in uh, ancient Greek or something. Um, but basically, they were finding that more and more luxury foods had a connection to organized crime. And in one of their seizures, I think it was back in in 2012 or 2013, they did seize basically, uh, I think it was two tons of fake or counterfeit truffles and also caviar. So caviar is another wow. one that sort of come, come under, under, um, you know, the eyes of these groups. And now some of them, like I did find sort of syndicates, but nothing that was related formally to a to a mafia group you just have these groups of guys who do this and they organize they're they're highly organized and they're fraud um but it's not necessarily directly linked to um, a true mafia i wrote a lengthy piece on my blog uh probably two years ago, about food fraud and talked about a lot of the same things that you're talking about, which is extremely interesting. But one of the craziest stories that I stumbled upon was this story about uh, this urban legend about uh, calamare. Um, mm -hmm. And they did a story on This American Life about it. I, I don't know if you heard this story that um, there was a rumor floating around that calamare was not, in some restaurants, was not actually octopus but right. was pig's anus. Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard that too. <laughs> Apparently it's it's not true, uh, but yeah, yeah. it makes for a fascinating urban legend. You know, you tell people that and yeah. they're like, oh my God. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I didn't hear the story, but um, there, you have to be a bit, very careful about what you eat and about what you buy because food fraud is a growing phenomenon not just in Italy, but all over the world. Um, so when you go to a restaurant, you got to ask questions and you might be one of those annoying patrons that the server doesn't like, but it, it is really good to read the menu carefully, make sure you know exactly what you're buying. And when you're at the grocery store, it's important to look at the labels, especially with truffle products. Um, so there's truffle butters, truffle salts, uh, truffle oils, um, most of those products contain little to no actual truffles, as I'm sure you know. But the key to sort of unlocking 
the mislabeling of those is to look, if you look very carefully at the ingredients list, if there is truffle in it, they will list it by the Latin name. And so for black truffles, you would be looking for tuber melanosporum. And for white truffles, you would be looking for tuber magnatum pico. Um, and if those aren't listed by name, in all likelihood, th that product doesn't contain anything either. Uh, it contains a th synthetic, which is called bismethylomethane. It's a petroleum derivative. Um, you can buy it from huge, big, old, uh, big chemical companies like Sigma Aldrich. Um, it's basically just... Um, it's not really good for you, uh, but it smells and tastes faintly of um, of truffles. Um, it, but other than that, those sorts of products are uh, very unlikely to contain real truffles. And then if you go to like a whatever it is, a TGI Fridays, I don't know where they sell. Uh, truffle fries now, but pretty much truffle <laughs> fries are just, you know, they don't have a lot of people, I think, think they're consuming truffle product, but they're not consuming anything related to truffles. It's like you have to be careful when you think you're consuming something. And especially if it's like more expensive at a restaurant, like even truffle fries now, you it's just a way to mark up the price of regular fries, um, even though it's it's a very uh, non-expensive item because these oils are, you know, really cheap. You know, I always say those truffle fries you're getting, the reason they smell like northern New Jersey is because yeah. that's where all the petroleum <laughs> plants are in northern New Jersey. And right, it, exactly. it's not, it doesn't, you can't, you can't have real truffles on fries for $15. Okay. It's just not, right. it's not going to happen. That's why yeah. whenever I order in a restaurant, if I'm getting something with truffles, they're shaving it on there. You have to see it. Otherwise, yeah. and even then, like you've pointed out here, even then you're not 100% sure, but at least I'm right. not getting that truffle oil crap that I rail against. Right. Um, right. You had to spend a lot of time in Italy researching your book, Ryan. I, I assume mostly in the Piedmonte area, one of my favorite mm. regions of Italy. Um, what was your experience like other than hunting down truffle fraud in Italy? That's a good question. I went to uh, an amazing, I think it's two Michelin star restaurant in a very tiny um, city that's sort of like off, totally off the beaten track. It's just uh, probably 40 minutes outside Torino. It's called Treveri. Um, and there is this chef by the name of uh, Gian, I think his name is Gian Pedro Vivalda. And he, um, in the restaurant, is called Antica Corona Reale. Um, he is just an amazing chef. So if you have time while you're traveling in that area, even if you're not, uh, Treveri is kind of out of the way. It's near Alba and Asti, but it's not, it's certainly not a destination that anybody knows about. Uh, there's nothing really there besides this restaurant, but it is, it is a phenomenal experience. And I had, I walked in with my Italian translator and we were, um, expecting to kind of interview the chef um, about something specific and violent that I can tell you about later. Um, and he sat us down to lunch. Uh, it was a four course meal. Um, 
we had brilliant glasses of, of, uh, I, I, I'm, I think it was Barolo. Um, and yeah. And we just had this amazing pasta. I think there was, um, sort of, uh, some kind of like game hen that was packed into, um, the ravioli. Uh, there was a white truffle soup, uh, that felt like I was just literally sucking in the, the, the very soul of a fresh white truffle. Um, it was just, it was, uh, some unbelievable cheese, egg and truffle soup. Um, and he does other dishes that are just extraordinary and he's a very nice guy he doesn't speak much english um but robert de niro and hillary swank um some of those other kinds of uh american celebrities have have made the trek from turin to go to his restaurant so um that was one of the reasons that we stopped there because he he supposedly sells more white truffles um than anyone more fresh white truffles than anyone in a single season in that area. Um, but we also stopped there, uh, because I, I believe it was in 2014, but I might be getting the dates wrong. Maybe it was in 2013. I'm not sure. Um, he lives in a residence that's above the restaurant. Um, they have a little garden outside. He was, uh, returning home one night, um, after closing up the kitchen, he's usually the last one to leave after everyone else has left for the night. And he walks upstairs and he (laughs) opens his door, I believe. And there are these four, three or four guys, thugs, um, who were just rifling through his drawers. Um, they started pummeling him. They put him in they put him in a chair. They bound him with, I think it was rope or electric tape. Um, then they left him up there after they had sort of taken care of him, taken some of his watches and stuff, went downstairs into the kitchen, opened the uh, refrigerator, and took every single uh, white truffle that he had. Um, Thousands of dollars. Had a, yeah, yeah. He had a lot. Uh, it might have been more than that, actually. And he suspects that that's actually why he was ambushed or targeted. Sure. They knew they knew it was a good, a really good white truffle season. It's an extremely expensive product. You can once you've stolen it, you can sell it pretty easily. There's no like I was saying earlier, there's not much checks or documentation or paperwork. Um, so I felt I really felt bad for for him. Um, but he is an amazing chef. And even after that experience, he says he's committed to serving white truffles, you know, until until he's gone. Oh, wow. Got right back on the horse. Um, that's a place I, I haven't I'm not familiar with that restaurant. I'm going to put it on my list because Torino is one of my favorite underrated cities in Italy. A lot of people think of it as an industrial wasteland because it's the headquarters of Fiat, but it really is a marvelous food city, and it's the gateway to all these other places like Alba and Asti. We were there for Christmas, and of course, everything's closed on Christmas Day, and we're starving because we got nowhere to go. There's a there's a uh, movie museum a really nice mm-hmm. movie museum in Turin and inside the movie museum is a Italy cafe 
and they oh, happened wow. to be open on Christmas Day. And we had just a wonderful meal there, um, including, of course, uh, champagne and uh, wonderful cheese and desserts th- uh, there at, at Italy. And uh, the headquarters of Italy, the, the big one, the massive one, is also in Torino. So it's a, it's a place I'm going to do a podcast about them sometime in the future because I love Torino so much. I was on the outskirts. I wasn't really in the city, but I've heard it's just a phenomenal place. And the investigative journalist that I was working with is actually from there. And he was telling me that I have to come back because it's just a wonderful food city, a wonderful place of, full of culture. So I, I do want to return. It really is. Well, Ryan Jacobs, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Your new book is called uh, The Truffle Underground. And before we let you go, where can people get your book? They can buy the book. I'm supposed to say wherever books are sold. Um, <laughs> But you can you can uh, buy it from your local indie bookshop. You can buy it from Amazon. You can buy it from Barnes and Noble. All those big uh, retailers. Um, but I, you know, support your local bookshop if you can. If you're not close to one, yes. uh, get it somewhere. Get it somewhere else. Ryan Jacobs, thank you for being on the show. Good luck with your book, The Truffle Underground. Uh, Everyone should go and pick this up. It's really a fascinating read. Thank you so much, Brent. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Destination Eat Drink. Thanks to Ryan Jacobs, author of Truffle Underground. Man, he's got some great stories about the truffle world and the shady side of that business. We drop a new episode each and every Friday. Make sure you don't miss one and subscribe to Destination Eat Drink at iTunes or just see it at Radio Misfits. Join me next week. We'll be visiting one of the great undiscovered foodie cities of Europe, Ljubljana, Slovenia. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.